Hello, and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast. Global equity markets have kept experts busy in the first few weeks of the year as prices have swung wildly among rising inflation and sharp interest rate rises. The Bank of England this week signalled it expects inflation to hit seven and a quarter percent in April, and it duly raised rates for the second time in as many months on Thursday. And US markets are currently pricing in around four to five rate hikes this year. In January, the Nasdaq dropped nearly 16%, regaining around 6% in the past week. The S&P 500 is down 5.5% and the Dow Jones crashed 6%, rising slightly as well this week. The FTSE 100, however, which is seen as more value-oriented than its tech-heavy growth counterparts in the US, has proven more stable and is up by around half a percent since the start of the year. The jury remains out on whether these fluctuations are the result of a move from a growth to a value cycle after a decade-long boom, or if they are just the result of uncertainty over the state of the economy. I'm Sally Hickey, a senior reporter, and with us this week are Louise Kernahan, manager of BNY Mellon's UK Equity and UK Sustainable Opportunity Funds, and Ed Smith, co-chief investment officer at Rathbones Investment Management. Hi both, and thank you for joining us. Louise, I'll come to you first. If the US markets were to continue to drop, do you think the UK equity markets would gain this ground or are they more likely to fall in tandem? Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me on today. Um, I think uh, given the global nature of markets, um, generally speaking, over time, we do tend to see equity markets in different regions move broadly in step. Um, if we bear in mind that um, the majority of the large companies which drive global markets in whatever region um, are global in nature, and that counts for the UK. Um, The key to the difference between um, UK and US markets um, in terms of performance that we see in the shorter term really lies um, in the sector differences um, in the UK and the US. So um, if we think to um, the UK uh, FTSE All Share benchmark, it, it's made up over 25% of energy um, banks and mining companies, uh, and less than 2% is technology. Um, whereas uh, if we look at the global benchmark, uh, you have uh, less than 4% being energy, for example, um, and over 25% in technology. So they really are quite big differences. So when we see such Um, exaggerated, I suppose, moves as we have seen so far this year, I mean, really unusual, and then that's when we see the real divergence in markets. So what that means, I suppose, going forward is, um, I suppose, maybe slightly obvious, but if we see the resource companies and the banks continue to outperform technology, then the UK will continue to outperform the US, um, as we've seen here today. Um, If we were to see a reversal of that trend, then we'd see the opposite. Uh, I suppose the other point to make in terms of difference between um, UK and US and other global markets um, is that the UK has been out of favour for some time um, for a variety of different reasons, but uh, it trades on a discount to other regions globally. And that's even if you adjust for the sector differences, um, the discount's currently about 20%. So there are good reasons to think that the UK could continue to outperform other regions globally, but I wouldn't expect uh, the divergence to be as um, exceptional as it has been for the first few weeks of this year. And given that that UK equities have underperformed um, relative to other global equity markets for so long, do you think this is a wobble or do you think this is a sign of uh, that, that underperformance changing? 
I think there are good reasons to think that the underperformance could change. I think it will be gradual over time. Um, I think some of the reasons to not invest in the UK are uh, declining. So, for example, Brexit, uh, as we all know, is a massive uh, topic, a uh, huge uncertainty from 2016 till about a year ago. Um, then uh, when COVID-19 came and overtook Brexit uh, in the UK headlines, you know, the UK was one of the worst hit in terms of COVID. But, you know, the UK seems to be one of the first, you know, touch wood, maybe too early to say, but seems to be one of the early ones um, coming out um, of the pandemic and our fundamentals are strong. So I think there are less negative reasons um, uh, for people to be avoiding the UK. And I think that in itself should help sentiment. Sure. And Ed, to come to you, on the sort of, I guess, the other side of this, given that uh, some people argue that growth stocks still do have considerable long-term value. Do you think the UK is too focused on the value sectors such as financial services and mining firms? Yeah, uh, well, hello, Sally. Um, so I think the 15-year um, the run of growth significantly outperforming value is actually much more of a US uh, phenomenon than an international one. Um, and I think a lot of investors don't quite realize that within Europe or within the UK, uh, growth has outperformed over the last 15 years, but not by nearly as much. And actually, between for most of the last decade, between 2011, 2017, relative performance of value and growth pretty much oscillated sideways. And I think that's quite important to remember when thinking if fewer growth companies has hurt the UK. But obviously, for global allocators like us, it, it, it does Madam Moore. Um, and you know, we're not ditching uh, profitable US growth outright. But, you know, um, for, uh, you, I think you've got to acknowledge that there were some pretty unique circumstances that fueled the growth versus value onslaught over the last uh, 15 years. We have major structural declines in real interest rates, a decline in trend global growth, a decline in the number of high growth companies. So both of them increasing the scarcity value of growth, an inability for antitrust to adapt to policing digital businesses. On the other side, we had an unprecedented tightening of financial services regulation. Now, we don't predict that any of these things will stage a meaningful reversal, but they are unlikely to continue in the same direction with the same sort of magnitude. Um, so we think the market returns may become less of a contest between different style factors linked to the macro economy and more about a bottom-up earnings momentum. And earnings momentum can be found in both growth and in value and in income uh, sectors. I think just uh, I do worry a little bit about the incentives that a market like the UK dominated, well, not dominated, but with a large proportion of its uh, institutional AUM managed by income fund managers. Um, I do worry about the incentives that that sets up. Yeah, I think 30% of AUM of UK funds is in income funds, and that's sort of not, like nothing else you see anywhere else in the world. And one of the reasons why global growth has slowed is because rates of business investment has slowed. And businesses need incentives to invest in CapEx and R&D because that's how economies and profits grow. And fund managers have a crucial, pretty crucial role in setting up those incentives. Income funds definitely have their place in society. I'm not saying... That, but they do need to focus on sustainable growth uh, too. So, Ed, do you think that the increase in in in, in the importance of sentiment or the 
in markets in the past two years will mean that investors aren't really looking at these bottom-up fundamentals that that are obviously so important uh, to to investments. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few sort of studies, more academic studies on this over the last few years about the sort of sensitivities of stocks to fundamentals or something else, call it sentiment or or, or something algorithmic or, or what have you. And I think what is tend to be concluded is that actually the signal sent from earnings releases or changings in fundamentals is still a very powerful one. It just can then be blown out of all proportion by uh, you know, some of the new developments in, 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 in the uh, investor bases. So I don't think sort of fundamental investors need to despair, but uh, sort of getting a call on the uh, earnings or the macro environment wrong can perhaps result in a more violent move in the stock price than perhaps you would have historically been used to. Sure. So there's just more volume in the market. There's sort of more uh, noise going on than ever before. Yeah, exactly. And more amplification, I think. Yeah. Sure. And Louise, do do you think that UK fund managers are more bullish on UK equities than investors? And if so, why? I think they're... Well, yes, I do think that uh, UK portfolio managers uh, are more bullish on UK equities than than investors who look more widely. Um, and I think uh, some of that will be down to perception versus reality. So for us UK portfolio managers who day in, day out are scouring the UK market looking for ideas, um, you know, there's the FTSE 350 has got 350 companies, obviously, and then you've got an alternative investment market that's got more companies. There's there's so many um, companies out there that you don't, you know, might not necessarily come across unless you're spending all day every day looking at these companies. Um, I think the perception of investing in the UK before, like, w- without going into that much depth, is as I said earlier, um, you focus on the overarching, you know, the political environment or um, some economic headlines or our biggest companies which aren't necessarily always our best companies um and yeah they don't necessarily have any bearing to the opportunity that you can get from investing in the uk um so uh i suppose a cynic might say that oh well louise you're a uk portfolio manager of course you're going to be bullish on the uk but um i can assure you that i wouldn't be doing this job unless i saw significant opportunity um whilst our technology sector, it might be small in the benchmark at, uh, as I said before, less than 2%. Uh, that 2% actually was well, less than that now that they've fallen, but that actually consists of about 20 different companies um, in the mid-cap space doing really interesting things. And okay, they're not the household names um, that we have in the US market, but um, they're still you know, either like global leader in um, a small niche or they uh, might be the leader in a specific part of the value chain. Um, and they've got significant runway of growth ahead of them, um, I suppose, by nature of being smaller. Um, and these companies are often not known um, uh, and kind of fly under the radar. Uh, so I think there's significant opportunity there. You just have to to look for it. And I think you also have to be willing to invest differently from the benchmark, because as we've discussed already, the benchmark in the UK is very skewed towards particular sectors which um, have done well so far this year. But, um, you know, they're really big in the benchmark as a function of their historical performance rather than necessarily the future performance. Um, And uh, yeah, 
in the long term, company share prices uh, follow the growth in earnings. Um, it doesn't always happen in the short term, as as Ed was just talking about. We've seen these wild swings, but in the long term, that should hold true. So, yeah, uh, I can assure you as a UK portfolio manager, genuinely, um, it's a really exciting time. And Ed, you've been nodding to that. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I think it's very easy for, for global investors to write off the UK because it's now quite a small proportion of the global stock universe. And a lot of people unfairly write it off because, as Louise was saying, sort of nominally it has a very small technology uh, sector. Uh, and that, and people presume that's why the UK trades at such a low valuation relative to the US. But as Louise pointed out uh, earlier, you know, prior to 2016, when you neutralised uh, sector differences, so you really compared apples with apples, the UK traded on the same multiple as the US. But since then, it's now trading at a at a very wide uh, discount. Um, and, and also, if you look at, <clears throat> if you cut the data another way and you look at stocks projected to grow their revenue by the same amount as the high growth companies in the US or Europe, you know, of which there, there are some, they're also trading at a really big discount. Now, this is really difficult to justify, right, especially in a world where capital should be able to flow around developed markets with pretty little friction. It's almost like an arbitrage opportunity. So I think um, I think uh, investors have quite easily written off the UK, but perhaps now that some of the sort of style factors are, are tilting, I think there's some really compelling reasons why they may come back in. And if you look at some of the survey evidence from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch fund manager survey, yeah, they're starting to cut to, to come back for the first time in years. And do you think there's a risk that UK investors might have too much of a home bias? I think um, I think some still do, um, and I think, but I think that's changed quite dramatically over the last uh, decade. There are a few reasons why a UK or sterling-based investor um, may hold more in the UK or substantially more in the UK than the global benchmark. I think one of the things, well, one of the things sort of prior to the financial crisis, the UK equity market was much less volatile than the international market for sterling investors. Uh, the UK had lower peaked trough drawdowns during periods you know, when global equities were, were falling by more than uh, 10%. Now, those instances have actually become less frequent over the last uh, decade, and UK equity volatility in most sample periods over the last decade has been the same, if not higher, than global benchmark. But that might be due to a series of idiosyncratic shocks, right? The Euro European sort of double-dip recession, Eurozone debt crisis, Brexit, covid and if it's because of that and not more intrinsic, then we may go back to a world where actually UK equities are trading that lower volatility, which is mainly due to the currency effect. Uh, and so from a risk efficiency point of view, there might be a reason why you'd have a bit more in, in, in your home country. And then another really important argument, perhaps, for, for uh, a bit of more home bias than the global benchmark is actually related to engagement and stewardship, which is a much more important part of institutional fund management than it ever was before. Um, and you know, clients are beginning to expect much more, uh, more of it, and they will start to expect more efficacy as well. And a recent study by the UN's uh, PRI 
um, found that in, in engagement, success rates are elevated by, they reckon, about one-third uh, when there is a lead investor engaging you know, in the um, in their home country, you know, with a with a uh, with a company located where they are. Um, so, and I think that's uh, an important factor that actually a lot, of, a lot of people aren't necessarily considering. And as ESG is more formally integrated, it can it might perhaps boost the attractiveness of the UK equities to UK uh, sort of global invest uh, globally oriented but UK based investors. And is that purely a, an access um, point or is that that the UK companies in the UK markets are more progressed uh, and reporting more efficiently on ESG matters? No, I think that's predominantly an access because the UN study was looking at engagements all over, all over the world. Sure. And of course, it's easier to call someone up in the UK than try and get hold of, um, you know, Tesla. Yeah, exactly. For right. instance. <laughs> And uh, final question for you both. I'll come to you, Louise, first. Um, will the FCA's uh, attempt to encourage more growth firms to float in the UK, will this work? And what impact do you expect that to have on, on portfolios? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, I think it really remains to be seen. But I do think that the changes being made can only be helpful. Um, I think the complexity lies in um I suppose the impact of change in rules um, and impact of change in investor attitudes and um, it's relatively straightforward to change the rules. You know, we saw that happen last year, which was great. You know, it's a really good sign seeing the UK being progressive and you know flexible in that way. But um, I think UK investor base um, will take longer to change. So to give an example um, of that, so uh, last year we saw um, the change so that now companies with dual class share structures, um, they are now allowed to have a premium listing. But uh, before that change happened, there were a couple of IPOs that listed on the standard market with that dual class share structure. And uh, it was the investors that were put off by um, that uh, rather than the listing not allowing that to happen. Um, and in fact, one of the companies that listed uh, on the standard a standard listing with dual class share structure um, changed the dual class share structure after listing because investors were unhappy with um, with that. So it's, it's, and it's difficult because it's a fine balance because on the one hand, we do really want these exciting new companies to be listing in the UK um, said before that, you know, it feels like the UK is underrepresented in terms of value um, of the technology sector, for example. But on the other hand, one of the real attractions of the UK market for investors has been our high standards of corporate governance. Um, and I really don't think we want to lose that. Um, and I think, you know, UK investors are right in um, in being concerned about that. So, yeah, it's, it's just a really, really um tricky area uh, but I do think it will be helpful in the long term um, the flexing of the rules I think yeah the UK has been pragmatic we've not um, changed so much that um, uh, that you know it's a real drop in our corporate governance standards um, and I think what will happen will be uh, it will be a gradual shift over time I think as we see more and more companies IPO um, uh, more and more different types of companies IPO you know in the UK uh, our investors aren't so used to analysing maybe loss making startup companies or biotech uh, the more these types of companies come to the market or maybe with some slightly quirky structures, the more 
the more comfortable uh, we are analysing them and investing in them. So I think, yeah, there'll be an element of critical mass. So, um, yeah, the answer is that it will help, but um, I wouldn't expect uh, the UK market to be full of, you know, hot tech companies uh, overnight. Yeah, it's an interesting line that the regulators have to uh, have to tread quite carefully. And I'm wondering if you've seen what kind of impact Brexit has had on, you know, the UK having a bit more control over its regulation, but the regulators aware of this reputation of strong corporate governance. Have you seen any sort of, um, since we've left the EU, have you seen a kind of new wave of desire to make the UK, you know, more attractive to list? And and are the regulators aware of really balancing those two uh, sides of the coin quite carefully? Yeah, I think it might actually be less directly to do with Brexit and maybe more indirectly in the sense that, um, as I said before, the UK has lost its shine as Brexit was on every headline to do with the UK for years. Um, and so there's been more desire, I think, to to get its shine back. Um, I think that's been more of a factor rather than uh, sort of the actual mechanics of Brexit itself uh, in my opinion sure and and ed do you think there is a risk that that with wanting all this investment the uk will kind of dilute the the usp of its equity markets well i think louise made an interesting point about the uk having historically a a reputation for higher standards of, of good corporate governance and i think Actually, yeah, I'm a I'm a, a bit of an economic history nerd, and for 120 years, the history of stock exchange listing rulemaking has been characterised by the opposite mentality to what the FCA did last December. You tighten the rules to attract more capital because the best firms used to want to list on exchanges with the tight rules so they can signal their virtues, which investors are willing to pay more for. Um, so it's interesting and perhaps slightly depressing uh, if we've reached a stage where the opposite actually you attract more capital by loosening your rules. But yeah, we all know you know what sort of entrepreneurs sort of want, and you know with a rapidly changing, innovating world, you know, perhaps it might have some uh, effect. But it, but again, I'm I'm slightly. Uh, I think if the UK had really wanted to reap the benefits of this, it should have done it ten years ago. And I think with ESG being integrated much more formally into institutional money, we actually may now see a greater penalty playing out in the cost of capital for companies with less than stellar G, less than stellar corporate governance structures. Um, so we might see them becoming less common over time anyway, in, in which case this change of rules might not really alter the, the, the landscape that much um, uh, anyway. Yeah, it's interesting your point on on governance because it does seem to be that the E has been probably the the easiest, um, the environmental damage is the easiest thing to to judge from a company. And as you go down the E, then the S, then the G, it gets harder and harder to judge how a company is, you know, responding well socially to its to its sort of environment. And it's a really fascinating point that that list being able to list in the UK has been seen as almost a gold standard and that mm. accidentally the FCA could potentially risk getting well you know the regulators in general could could risk getting rid of that because of a desire just to to pull as much into the UK markets as as they want yeah I think that's right I think it's really interesting that about the G as you say is sort of it's, it's ESG and it is kind of in third place the G which is weird because of 
five years ago when very few people cared about integrating material sort of environmental risks or social risks, people did used to talk about corporate governance. Um, regular investors were concerned with governance structures, but now that seems to have been f- sort of fallen off and it seems to be the sort of harder one to integrate for reasons I'm not quite understanding. But I think it is, um, you know, when we're integrating a, 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 a RAC range, you know, we're putting you know, pretty equal weight on, on all of them. And you, know, you can do it. There's various sort of ways uh, to, to, to do this. And I wonder... Yeah, once people have got sort of aligned with the with the environmental factors, that actually the G will start to become a bit more important again. Yeah, and as you say, you know, I wonder whether it's the impact of COVID in the past two years has really focused people's awareness on the environmental side of it because that's just gone, gone, gone nuts. But as you say, yeah, and the social side as well, yeah. Exactly, at the expense of, of the governance, which is, yeah. you know, just as important, just not as headline grabbing, um, because there's no uh, right. plague. There's no governance plague that we're right. right. Yeah. Fab. Well, we're sadly running out of time. Uh, Louise and Ed, thank you both for your comments and for speaking to FT Advisor today. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.